So look, hey, one of the greatest hoax that's ever happened that we may not have heard of happened in 1835. And this hoax was called the Great Moon Hoax. So there's this editor of a paper in New York, The Sun, Richard Adams Locke, who wrote this six-part series of articles that just shocked its readers. All right, so the articles claim that there is an astronomer, Sir John Herschel, that traveled to Cape of Good Hope. This is a place in South Africa. And so he traveled there with this telescope that was supposedly six times larger than any other telescope that had ever been created in human history. And he went to study the stars in the Southern Hemisphere. And whenever this guy, Sir John Locke, or Sir John Herschel went, he discovered more than he bargained for. So he goes to Cape of Good Hope. He's studying the Southern Hemisphere. And these articles, they contain these fabricated quotes from Sir John Herschel that he had discovered life on the moon. Discovered life on the moon. And he's giving intimate details about what he's discovered on this enormous telescope that he's had. But not only this, that he had solved every leading problem of mathematical astronomy that was going on in present day. These big, big audacious claims. And so Locke knew, the editor, he knew that Sir John Herschel was this astronomer that wasn't very well known. And since he wasn't very well known, and it's in the 1830s, he's not going to be easily traced. And so he could see that his hoax would be safe. And to say that the series was a hit would be an understatement. So this six-part article was spread. It was reprinted in newspapers all throughout Europe. Italy, there's an article um, in Italy that happened where they actually put together artwork based off of all the articles and the findings that Sir John Herschel had found with this great moon hoax. And they put together all this artwork. They had it displayed. They sent it off in their newspapers. It was just a huge, huge deal. And it wasn't until years later Years later, that this editor, Locke, admitted that he wrote the whole entire thing, that he made it up, that it was a fabrication. He said that he wrote it intending that it would be a satirical piece, but that he underestimated the gullibility of the public. And so this big story that just caught massive storm, that it went and spread like a wildfire, that people thought this was real, life was on the moon, that all these intricate problems had been solved was all a hoax. The story wasn't real. And here's the thing, it didn't really matter. Life didn't change for people. The day-to-day life just continued on. It was just almost as if an imagination piece had just been taken away and life went on as normal. So look, we're, we're gathering around a story this morning that some would relate is no different than the great moon hoax. That Jesus being resurrected from the grave was just this legend that his disciples put together that's lasted until this very moment. But look, if the resurrection of Jesus is a hoax, it's not like the great moon hoax because it would really, really matter. Deeply matter, not just for us individually and personally, but for our whole entire world. If the resurrection didn't happen, I think the Apostle Paul puts it so well in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. You see, the resurrection of Jesus 
isn't just to be read as like a parable or a legend or something that we should read of how we should live our life, nor is the resurrection of Jesus just something that's to stir emotions inside of us, but not based in historical events. The resurrection of Jesus really happened and it really, really matters, which is what I want us to wrestle with this morning as we're looking at Mark 16, verses one through eight. I want us to look at the details of this account of Jesus' resurrection in the Gospel of Mark and how it really happened. That Mark is giving accounts that of things and events that happened in human history and it really, really happened. But then I also want us to look at why this resurrection of Jesus really matters. That it doesn't just affect something in the far off distant future, but it affects your everyday life here and now. The resurrection of Jesus really happened. And the resurrection of Jesus, it really matters. So let's first consider the details in the Gospel of Mark of how the, how the resurrection of Jesus really mattered. So look, as we're wrestling through this, here's my hope. Here's what I've been praying for as I've been preparing for this week. That as we're wrestling with this part of it, I understand that life is really hard and there's a lot of things that are very confusing that happen for us. And so we look at things like the resurrection of Jesus and there's times, no matter how hopeful how strong our belief has been in previous parts of our life, there's ways that we have these difficult circumstances in our life that cause us to doubt. Did it really happen? Did this thing actually take place? And so here's my hope as we're working through these details, here's my hope, I hope it's comforting to you. As we look at details, as we think and wrestle with the truths of this passage, that man is just like a balm for your soul. With all the maybe deep wounds that you're experiencing that feel very open and exposed right now, that the details that we work through this in this resurrection account, that man, it would just be a balm for your soul. It's like a healing ointment on those deep wounds. All right, so here's what I want us to do. We're gonna see in this passage, um, there's three things that I think give credence to the resurrection really happening. First, that there's eyewitnesses. Second, that there's an empty tomb. And third, there's an earnest response. So look with me at the witness account. We see this in verses one through three. I'll read it again to refresh your mind and then we'll talk about it for a second. So here's what it says. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' closest followers, Mary the mother of Jesus, which is the mother, or mother of James, which is also the mother of Jesus. James is his brother. And then Salome bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. So look, immediately we see that they know where Jesus was buried. And then there's also no concept for them that Jesus would be alive. You bring ointments, you bring spices, not to stop the decay of a body, but to overcome the smell of it. So they know where Jesus is at. They bring spices to anoint Jesus' body to take away the odor. It's a simple act of devotion. And so very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Again, another just instance. There's no way that they think Jesus is alive. They're trying to think through, how do we even get in? There's no concept that Jesus would be alive. All right, so two things about the eyewitnesses here. 
The first is that the eyewitnesses were women, and then second, that Mark lists their name, all right? So it's a big deal that the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection are women. Listen, ladies, this should show you how valued and prized you are to God, that even in a time, in a moment where maybe the society does not value you, your God sees you, he values you, and he chose women to be the very first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, because this is what was going on in the context at that time. Women were not seen in a high value, and so they are seen so lowly, actually, that their testimony would not be, even be acceptable in the court of law. So like, don't even think about the idea of like, voting and participating in the acts and the things that are happening in society. Even if you saw something that was in, just so dreadful, that was just so grotesque, that even if you're the only one that saw it, you take it to the courts, the testimony of a woman wouldn't even hold weight in that court in the decision that would be made on that particular decision. That's how low women were thought of, but not God. That's not how God views women. He chose women to be the very first eyewitnesses of the resurrection account. But look, if you're in this society and you're making up the story of Jesus' resurrection from the grave, that you would choose women to be the first eyewitnesses of the story of this resurrection of Jesus would undermine the story, not assist it. So the only reason that you would include that women were actually the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection is because it really happened. That the news of this story was so widespread that you couldn't get away from the details that it was these three women that went to do this very act that Mark reports that they went to do. Women are so viewed highly with God. If you look throughout the history of the church, this is something that shouldn't be shocking to us. You always see women at the forefront of the mission of God. They're always the ones that are kind of stepping in. They're the ones that were some of the most close followers of Jesus during his lifetime. And God chose and selected women to be the very first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. But if you're trying to give credence to a story that you're making up, this is not how you do it. The only reason that you have women as the first eyewitnesses of the account of the resurrection of Jesus is one, because God values you, but secondly, because it really happened. The other thing to note here is that Mark lists the names of the women, which is like whoop de doo right? Like Mark lists some names, big deal. Well, it's actually a bigger deal than you might think because this is the third time that Mark has listed these three names in a span of 10 verses. So if you look throughout the gospel of Mark, Mark is notoriously bad about listing people's names. If you look throughout different pieces of the gospel of Mark and these enormous like miracles and the power of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, you look at all these things, you often see that names are left absent from the interactions that Jesus has with people in the gospel of Mark. But here you see Three ladies' names that are listed in a matter of 10 verses. There's a Bible scholar, Richard Bauckham. He says this is just another detail that Mark lets us know that this is an inher- a historical account and not an urban legend. And the reason why he probably lists these names is because these women were still alive when Mark was writing this very gospel. 
It's like Mark is citing his sources and also putting footnotes in the story of the resurrection of Jesus. It's like Mark is trying to take his readers and he's trying to say, look, if you don't believe what I'm saying, if you don't believe what I'm reporting, these people are still alive. If you want to go and talk with these ladies that saw both Jesus' crucifixion, but also saw his resurrection, then, and you don't believe what I'm reporting to you now as he's writing to believers in Rome, he's saying, go find these ladies yourself. Like, go talk to them. They'll tell you the whole story. They'll tell you about Jesus' conversations on the cross. They'll tell you about what it was like to see an angel in real life sitting in this empty tomb, pronouncing that Jesus has been resurrected from the grave. They'll tell you all of it. So that these eyewitnesses are both women and their names are listed are just Mark trying to show this really happened. The tomb, it's really empty. Jesus is really alive. Which leads us to the next one. Um, Probably the most important detail to the whole story is that the tomb was empty, right? Verses Four through seven say this, looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. He said, don't be alarmed, he told them, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He knows exactly why they're there. He knows exactly who they're looking for, who was crucified. These women saw it literally just a couple of days ago, three days ago. They saw Jesus that was hung on a cross. He breathed his last. They mourned over this for a couple of days. This Jesus, he is not here. See the place where they put him. You, you were here. You saw where they laid his body. It's, it's empty. He's not here. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, which notice this, like the men are all hiding right now. The men are hiding in a room with a locked door because they're terrified that people are gonna seek them out, but you have women that are bold enough to go to the actual tomb of Jesus. He's going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see him there just as he told you. This is the most important detail to the whole story. The tomb is empty. Now, there's a number of attempts over human history since the resurrection of Jesus where people have tried to argue away or they've tried to discredit that the tomb was actually empty. So here's two of the most common arguments that you hear. The first one is that the disciples stole the body and then they lied to a bunch of people. They just made this up, they got rid of the evidence, they got rid of Jesus' body, and then they just started going around and making lies that Jesus actually was resurrected from the grave just as he promised that he would multiple times before he actually went to the cross. But this doesn't answer for the disciples' devotion. I mean, just think, rewind two days ago. These disciples who walked with Jesus for three and a half years, who saw all that Jesus had done and performed, they sat under his teaching at the most crucial point whenever Jesus is arrested, what do they do? They deny him and then they abandon him. They're not willing to lay down their life for this Jesus. There's the devotion that they've promised has been zipped away in just a matter of moments. There's no way that you go from abandoning and denying Jesus on the most crucial point of his life as he's taken to his death 
that there's a switch that flips that you immediately are willing for at least 40 years to state that this Jesus actually was resurrected from the grave, hold that lie for 40 years, and then willing to lay down your life for it. It just doesn't happen. Chuck Colson, who was part of the Watergate scandal, um, he was one of the 12 men that was a part of this whole interaction. Here's what he says about the resurrection in light of his experience. He says, I know the, res the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I think Blaise Pascal actually says it best and very concise. He says, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. And that's what you find in the apostles of Jesus, not just the 12, but so many more believers over the course of human history. That the disciples stole the body of Jesus and then lied doesn't make, it doesn't account for the actual devotion that you see this flip that switches inside of them after the resurrection of Jesus. So that's the first one. The second one is this, the disciples were just seeing things. The disciples were just seeing things. They look at the appearance and the witness of an angel with skepticism. I mean, it's like, come on. Are we really gonna do this? That like these three women, they actually saw an angel and the angel spoke to them and told them that the resurrection happened. They're just hallucinating. There's no way. Like, they're just seeing things. They're so delusional after all of the mourning that they've gone through for the last couple of days, after all the tremendous events that they've been through, the deep love that they felt for this man, they're just delusional. They just were hallucinating. They just saw things. This, there's no way that this happened. Miracles like this don't happen. But this, you, that doesn't, it doesn't work. Because this isn't the only account of Jesus appearing to different people. You look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote this. It probably happens within 15 years of Jesus' resurrection that happens. And what he, he does is he lists what's probably a gospel account that the church has reminded its people, has ingrained inside of its people, that this is how you share the gospel with other people that was actually brought, it was actually devised within just a matter of months of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. And he works through this. And what he says is that Jesus appeared to 500 people in real life where they touched him, they embraced him, he talked to them, he sat down and he ate with them, he drank meals or he drank uh, wine with them. Like there's things that Jesus did in their midst that there's no way that is just a matter of hallucination that happened because these people, these 500 people, Paul says, most of them were still alive. So not only could you go talk with Mary, who was Jesus' mother, Mary, who was closest disciple, or Salome, there's over 500 people that were probably still alive whenever Paul was writing that very account that you go talk to about Jesus, seeing him, touching him, embracing him, sitting down to eat a meal with him. So there's no way that it's just this hallucination that happens for these three women. But look, it also doesn't account for what's going on in culture and the beliefs of the culture at that point in time. 
There's a pastor that says this assumes that the resurrection would have been imaginable to people if they were just hallucinating, or if you even go back to the other one, that they just stole the body and then lied, is discrediting what's going on in the context and what they were believed and what they've been taught and everything the way that things functioned at that point in time. So if you look at the Greeks, Greeks wanted liberation from material and physical. They didn't want, if you died, they viewed this as a liberation from things that were broken, that were, that were weak, that were holding you back. And so look, it's not just unimaginable to them, it's undesirable. If they stole a body or if they're just hallucinating and they're trying to spread this lie about Jesus being resurrected from the grave, they would be like, I don't even want that. Like, my soul's been liberated from this broken, this weak flesh. Like, it's finally experiencing the power that it was intended to experience. The Greeks would want nothing to do with it. The Jews, at this point in time, believe in a resurrection that came with the restoration of the whole entire world. So look, they wouldn't have, it wouldn't have even occurred to them to make, the, make up this idea that Jesus' body was stolen and go around and lie to people, let alone that this hallucination happened. It, it wouldn't even be something in a concept that they could think up of because they had been taught so completely different. There's no way they could think of an, an individual resurrection that happened in the middle of human history where the rest of the world still experienced brokenness and sin and death and disease. They had no concept for it, let alone that they would believe other people would even understand or grasp or believe what they were trying to tell them if this is actually what they were trying to do. The context of society at that point in time, it wouldn't work. There's one pastor that I believe puts it so well. He says, it would have required some extraordinary, impossible to deny, powerful evidence to get first century Jews to overcome all that they had been taught and to believe that Jesus was a resurrected son of God. And look, in the empty tomb, they got it. So in this story, you have both eyewitnesses that saw the account. Then you have the empty tomb. But Jesus gets even more intricate in the details because then he reports a a response to this whole entire scenario. You have this whole entire situation and then you get the response of the eyewitnesses of the empty tomb that tell us just a honest, transparent response to what they saw and we see it in verse eight. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. These women have in earnest like this genuine, sincere, emotional response to the angel and the empty tomb. They are so shaken with fear that they leave the tomb trembling and tight-lipped. It's finally like God is actually saying to them all these things that Jesus has been trying to bottle up for all this time, this three and a half years of powerful ministry, powerful teaching that he's told people, hey, don't go tell anybody about this. The angel's like, hey, it's the, it, it opened up the gates. It's time to go tell anybody and everybody. And in the midst of this, the women are tight-lipped, they're afraid, they're terrified, and they don't go tell anybody. Now, we know this changes because they do end up going and reporting to Peter and he goes to the tomb. But there's this visceral, immediate response that is just a very honest response to what they've experienced at the empty tomb. 
If, you, if this is like you're trying to piece together the story that you hope people will believe, this isn't the ending to the story that you tell them. You don't tell them about these witnesses that are terrified and tight-lipped and they don't go tell anybody about it. That's not what you do. No, like you end with a triumph, right? I, it's like Milan, you know? Like you have this weak, this weak person that goes and steps in. She overcomes all the trials. She overcomes all the things that are gonna go up against her. And then she conquers the big bad enemy. And then they, they rejoice and they celebrate. That's not what happens here. No, it's unlikely witnesses that leave with this immense terror. They don't tell anybody about it. And there's no world that seems to be conquered by these immediate response of these women. Every scholar that I read this week agrees that such an honest response marks the story's authenticity because you just don't end a story like this in this way. But not only this, like their response, it also matches every encounter that you see of the power of God in the gospel of Mark. I mean, we've looked at numerous accounts throughout our series, Discovering Jesus, Jesus calming the storm, the disciples, it says they were terrified and their response is, who is this then? Even the wind and the sea obey him. They're just completely terrified. They're so scared by what they've just encountered and seen before Jesus he spoke and then the wind stopped and the, wind, and the waters cease. Then immediately Jesus heals the demoniac that there's 6,000 evil spirits that live inside of them. The, these people that were overseeing the pigs that the spirits went into and then rushed down into the waters, go back into the town and they report everything. The town comes out and what does the Bible say? It says that they were afraid and then they began to, they began to beg Jesus not just to leave their town, but to leave the region. They don't know what to do with him. I, we can't even begin to piece together what we've just experienced. Like, you have to get out of here. We're just, they're terrified by him. Then he crosses over the, the sea again, and then the crowds come. They meet Jesus. He's walking to go heal a little girl. And then this woman that's been crippled for numerous years, over a decade, she comes and she touches the garments of Jesus and he stops in his tracks. He can feel that the power has left him and he starts questioning who, who is the one that touched his garments. And the Bible says that the woman came and fell at Jesus' feet with fear and trembling. The only reason you end this story of Jesus' resurrection with the women leaving with such an earnest, emotional, sincere, genuine response is because it really happened and it matches with everything that you've seen in the gospel of Mark up to this point. So look, I, I know we've like covered a lot of details in these eight verses. You may be like, all right, we get it, right? Like, stop beating a dead horse. Let's, let's just kind of like move on. But honestly, like, it's just scratching the surface, if you look throughout the rest of the New Testament, there's so many different passages that are going through the details of people experiencing Jesus, the power of the resurrection and the effects that it's had on their life. You see it throughout the rest of the 
New Testament, but there's also piles of books that have been written on this account that the historical account that took place, the effects of it, the movement that happened with the church immediately in response to it. This is just scratching the surface. And so at the end of the day, if you can't believe that the resurrection really happened, even if everything that we've discussed this morning is like, I still can't believe this. Even if you go to the rest of the verses of the Bible, even if you go and you read all the piles of books that have been written on this, you have to find a plausible historical evidence for why the church exists today. You have to find a different reason. You can't just say, well, it's just this urban legend. that ha-. It doesn't make sense. The reason the church exists is because the resurrection really happened. And if, if you don't believe this, you have to find some other plausible, historical, credible reason for why the church still exists today and why there's still a proclamation of the resurrection that it actually happened in human history. But not only did the resurrection really happen, it really matters. Look, oh my goodness, the resurrection matters so, so much. Look, that Jesus, it it means that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, that he was the son of God and that he was the savior of the world, that he actually did what he said he was going to do. It really means that Jesus accomplished what he said he was going to do and defeating Satan, sin, and death, which just has astronomical effects for us in our relationship with God, but also our relationships with one another. It also means that the kingdom of God really has entered into this world, which means that everything has flipped on its head Everything by which we have functioned and the way that we think about doing things in this world, Jesus has flipped it on its head. Because if Jesus really resurrected from the grave, it means that his teachings were true. Which means this, that we, the people that are weak really are now the strong ones. That's what Jesus taught in his sermons. It also means that service is actually greatness in this world. It's not power. It's not climbing the corporate ladder. It's not a lot of money. Service and going down the totem pole where you're actually serving people is actually the way to greatness in this world now. And then mourning in this life actually means a produce of joy in the life that is to come. This is what Jesus taught in his teachings. This is how Jesus lived in his life. And if Jesus really is resurrected from the grave, he's flipped all the orders that we've commonly known in this world on its head, and he's instilled this new kingdom that's infiltrated this world and is spreading and is what actually leads to the happy, desirable life that we want in this world. It means all these things, and man, there's so much more that we could get into, but here's what I want us to do. I just want to talk about how this should hit us at a personal level, all right? The resurrection really happened, and it really matters, and it doesn't just matter for these big things that may seem really far off in the distance from us, but it actually matters, really, really matters to you personally in your day-to-day life. So here's the first one, all right? Just think with me on a couple of things here, and then we'll close. First, it matters to our relationships. Here's what this means, all right? If that Jesus really is alive, that he's resurrected from the grave, it means we really can forgive, and then it also means our, our relationships really are eternal. 
We really can forgive because Jesus is alive. It means God really has forgiven you and fully accepted you. Look, the death of Jesus was so gross and it was so gruesome, it was so bloody, it was so filled with torture and filled with beatings because our sin was so gross and gruesome to God. God knows everything about you and he knew he had to give everything for you in order for you to have a right relationship with him. And he did all that at the expense of Jesus. And here's our hope, that this Jesus that said he was gonna go stand in our place and bear the punishment that we deserve for our sins, that he was gonna take it for us because Jesus is alive. It means he actually did it. It's actually happened and it has ramifications on your life. That means you've experienced complete whole forgiveness in your relationship with God if you've trusted in the life, work, and death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this ought to completely transform our relationships. The extent to which God has forgiven us influences the forgiveness that we now extend to other people. Look, too often we think of forgiveness in terms of fairness. We measure the length of our forgiveness according to the depth of our woundedness. The critique that cuts too deep will play nice but the reality is that there's this bitterness that has been safely harbored in our hearts. Oftentimes, this is how we think about forgiveness. You let the joke slide this time, but the next time that they try to do this joke on you, it's the end of the deal, right? Look, I, I live with six people under the same roof. Um, not four boys, nine and under. I understand what this looks like. There's a lot of wronging each other on a day-to-day -day basis, a lot of conversations where you have to work through these things. I've seen how it's played out in our relationships. I've seen the tendency that happens in our hearts that we're willing to forgive to an extent, but then it's only a matter of how far, depending on what's been done to us, but look, if you are looking at your relationships in light of the resurrection of Jesus and what it has accomplished for you, which is complete and total forgiveness with your God who's in heaven, you come with empty hands to this God. There's nothing that you have to offer that will just make him want to bring you in that is desirable to him. We have nothing to give. It's been 100% God doing everything for us, totally for us, a huge extent of of the love of God towards us that we have empty hands when we come to him. And look, if we see this, we see how big and grotesque our sin was to God and what it meant of how he had to win us back by sending his son Jesus to die for us and that he was resurrected from the grave, that we have complete forgiveness. This should transform your life and it should also transform your relationships. The re restoration of heavenly relationships should then transform our earthly relationships because now you are completely freed to forgive. Not only this, our relationships really are eternal. Because Jesus is alive, it means that you invest in relationships now that last in eternity. So look, this should change the way that we view one another in the present. It should eliminate any type of partiality that we experience I mean, if you look at the church 
in the history of the church, there's just been this tearing down of walls when it comes to socioeconomic status, when it comes to skin color, when it comes to preferences. All of these things have been completely eliminated because everyone is on the same playing field when it comes to a relationship with God himself. And this should bleed over into our present relationships. It should eliminate any type of partiality that we experience within the church. It should also alter how we say our goodbyes we get really upset whenever people leave, and sometimes we don't leave in the best way. It's like, I'm never going to see this person again. But if you really think about our relationships in light of the resurrection, that we're going to spend eternity with these other people that proclaim the name of Jesus, then it means that we're going to see them for all eternity. So it transforms the way that we even think about our relationships when we say goodbye now because it's just a temporary goodbye. We're going to see them and we're going to be with them for all eternity, which also leads over into a hope that we have when we lose someone that we deeply love. I lost my grandmother eight months ago. And man, she's like the patriarch of my family. I think my wife saw me ugly cry in a way that she'd never seen me cry when I lost my grandmother. I love this woman. Like when we'd go spend summers at her house, there's family reunions, like they cared for us in some of the most dark seasons of our life when we were experiencing miscarriages and cancer. They sent money, they came and loved us, they comforted us, they sent us meals. Like they did everything for us that you could want in a loved one and I lost her eight months ago. But look, because she believes in Jesus, it's not just this loss that I never get to see my grandmother again, but because the resurrection really happened, she placed her faith in Jesus it means it's a temporal loss and I get to spend eternity with her forever. It transforms our relationships. We can completely forgive, but look, it also shows us, it reminds us that our relationships are really eternal. Beyond this though, it also matters, the resurrection also matters to our own growth. It means that you really can change. We take these personality tests that tell us all about ourselves, and it's like, well, that's just who I am, right? Like, uh, yeah, that ugly part of me, that's just who I am. That's just how God made me. That's just a part of who I am. You just need to accept me for who I am. But look, the resurrection tells us something completely different. Oftentimes when we think about, when we talk about change, we talk about removing the bad things in our life that we weed out the bad stuff, that we prune off the dead stuff. If, like, here's a statement, if you're not killing the sin that's in your life, then it's killing you. And look, the Bible calls for this stuff. I'm not saying that it doesn't. But the New Testament also talks about the resurrection life in terms of planting and watering and training. The resurrection life, it's not just getting rid of the bad stuff, but it's also living into the good stuff. Right? Like, I'm not saying that we need to talk less about like trying to put these bad things to death in our life or trying to get rid of these bad things or trying to remove the bad stuff, but we need to talk more about the stuff that we need to be fostering that's the good stuff that comes with the resurrected life. You know what I'm saying? Like, are you so focused on the bad stuff that you're missing the good stuff in your life that you're living as if you're poor when actually you're really rich? that you're missing the garden because you're so focused on the weeds in your life? Look, the resurrection life is so much more than just the stuff that we're supposed to get rid of in our life. There's so many other passages that talk about the things that we're supposed to put on in our life. The Apostle Paul, he says it in three different ways. He says, we crucify the flesh, but we also walk in the fruit of the Spirit when you look at Galatians chapter five. 
Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self, uh, self-control. Like all these things are things that we get to put on. It's not just the putting off and getting rid of the bad stuff in our life. There's these things that we get to step into, a, a new reality that we get to live into, these things that the Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of you when you place your faith in Jesus, he now empowers you to put on this completely new life. He also says in Ephesians chapter four, put off your old self, which is deceitful desires, but we also put on the new self, which is all these new things, this whole new way of life that Jesus has opened for us because the resurrection really happened and it really matters for us in our life. He says, Colossians chapter three, that we put to death the earthly nature, but then we look, we put on compassion and kindness and humility and patience and gentleness. These are all things because of the resurrection that it really happened in our belief in Jesus, this new life that we get to step into. So look, when we think about our life and it's like, oh, this is just how I was made. This is just a part of me. You just need to embrace me for who I am. Or we're thinking about, man, I need to get rid of all these bad things. And our focus, our gaze is set on all the bad parts of our life that we maybe, maybe glance at the good things that come with a resurrected life. Like we need to think differently. When you step into this resurrected life, It's not just like focusing on the bad stuff and beating ourselves up and trying to get rid of all the bad stuff. And man, I hate this about me. I do this often. We're constantly talking about all the bad stuff. Like, hey, I need you to like keep me accountable to this. Look, that's not bad. But what I'm saying is like, man, there's so much more over here. This resurrected life that we get to step into, this life that was bought at the blood of Jesus that we get to step into. And it's not just something we experience in the future. It's something that happens for us now. So look, the the resurrection of Jesus really happened and it really, really matters. It matters to our relationships. It matters to our personal change that happens in our life. So look, here's here's just what I want us to think about. Like some, like simple application for us to walk away with, all right? Like live the resurrected life now. Live it now. So look, if you have not placed faith in Jesus, like step into it. He's really alive and it really will transform your life. He doesn't ask you to go and clean up your life. He doesn't ask you to do a bunch of follow a bunch of rules before you come to him. It's simply putting your worst foot forward and coming to Jesus and saying, I need you as my Lord and my Savior. I trust fully in what you've done for me. Will you forgive me? And then this whole new order and the way that we get to live here now, but also the hope of all the good things coming to us and all the bad things being wiped away for all eternity is what your hope and your future and your present looks like. So step in. And then look, if you've already done that, live into this resurrected life. Like focus more on the putting on and not always just thinking about the putting off. There's a, a pastor that I think puts it just so beautifully, talking about that Colossians 3 passage where you die to your earthly nature, but you put on compassion, kindness, humility, patience, and gentleness. Look, we can get so frustrated about our life when it's like, man, and there's not, the progress just isn't happening like I want it to. Like the, the things, I, I see all the bad stuff and then the good stuff that has been made available to me just seems like I'm never stepping into it. It seems so hard, seems so challenging. It just seems like it's impossible for me to do. But he says, it's like learning to put on your clothes. 
I have a three-year-old, our Sawyer. He's learning what it's like to put on clothes right now. Changing him this morning was a chore to try to get him to church. Like trying to fit a, a, a shirt over your head instead of the head going through the head hole. It's often going through like an armhole, right? Like it's just, it takes like 20 minutes to get a three-year-old changed right now. But here's what happens when you're 18. You go off to college, you're in your dorm room, the alarm clock goes off 10 minutes before class, is about to start, you roll out of your bed, you throw on your clothes as if it's just second nature to you, you make your way across the campus and then boom, you're in class before class starts. This task that seems so easy and natural and second nature to you as you're an 18 year old was so enormously hard at three. And what Paul is saying here is like, this is a new practice that we are to train ourselves in this, that it goes against the normal nature that we have. But look, as you step into it, because the resurrection really happened and it really matters to your life, that there's this power that is at work inside of you, that as you step in to this resurrected life and you live in it now, that as you keep working at it, it's gonna change. And what seems so enormously hard at the very beginning is gonna become second nature to you as you continue to work at it and you train in it and you walk it and you foster it and you grow it. So look, this is what's available to you. Live the resurrected life now, like work at it, live into it. Because the effects of it are so tremendously enormous. Let's conclude with this, all right? The great moon hoax of 1835, at the end, it just didn't matter. It wasn't real and it didn't matter. There's nothing that changed about the world, but the same cannot be said about the resurrection of Jesus. If it didn't matter, if it didn't happen, then it really matters, all right? That means that we're still, there's still a debt to be paid for our sin. It means that we're still at odds with God and it means our world holds a very bleak future if the resurrection didn't happen. But it did and it matters. And the good news of Easter is that the resurrection, it both really happened and it really matters and it will transform your life. One pastor puts it like this, summarizes everything that we've been talking about and this is kind of the bow at the end of the sermon, all right? Here's what he says. Jesus had risen just as he told them he would. After a criminal does his time in jail and fully satisfies, satisfies the sentence, the law has no more claim on him and he walks out free. Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins. This was an infinite sentence, but he must have satisfied it fully because on Easter Sunday, he walked out free. The resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across human history so that nobody can miss it. That's what we celebrate today. Your debt paid in full because Jesus really is alive and it really transforms your life. Let's pray.